The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. Hello, and welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. Historians, like Alice in her Adventures in Wonderland, tend to fall down rabbit holes. At least, that's what it feels like sometimes, getting lost in research into one period or people or historical event. In this episode, we're going to hear from a group of historians musing on their experiences going down rabbit holes in their study of indigenous history. In fact, rabbits and rivers was the theme of the Pacific Northwest History Conference the group was attending in the fall of 2022. It was organized by our partners at the Washington State Historical Society. The final event of the meeting was a Confluence Story Gathering at, appropriately, the Confluence Story Circles by Maya Lin at Sacagawea State Historical Park in Pasco, Washington. The conversation was moderated by historian Emily Washines, a member of the Yakima Nation, along with Gonzaga University Native American Studies Director Lori Arnold and Cole Thrush, Professor of History at the University of British Columbia. As the sun set over the confluence of the Snake and Columbia Rivers, the historians discussed how creativity and curiosity informed their approaches to studying history. Emily Washines started the conversation with an introduction in the native language Ishishkin. Shah Klawe Imimanaimima, Inknash Miniksha Twaipam, Shah Lichau Pawa Nimaimima, Kushah Lichau Swiss. Good evening. My name is Emily Washines, and I'm honored to be here today. I'm an enrolled Yakima tribal member with Cree and Skokomish lineage. And uh, I'm here today with my uh, husband and three children who will intermittently listen (laughs) 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 because the water is their entertainment tonight. But um, I definitely am so glad to be on this panel and I'm going to turn it over to each of my uh, panelists to introduce themselves. Why Haskohauch, Esquist, Lori Arnold, Kinson Ikes, Tkalvil Confederated Tribes, Kin, Director of Native American Studies at Gonzaga University, Associate Professor of History as well. Thank you to everyone for being here. What a beautiful evening. Thanks to Cole. Mm-hmm. Thanks to Confluence for including me. Like, this is a fabulous event. <laughs> and I'm so happy to see so many folks here engaging with these questions and with these ideas. And um, I hope that you've just had a beautiful conference here in this beautiful place. And uh, even though I'm a settler, I've been asked by some of my teachers to use the language as well when I when I introduce myself. So I'll say Chaim Tilikum, Kol Thrush Naikanem, Itzan At UBC, Itzan Seth Taskolton Tananet, Esbutle Chibi Tubutle Chad Dequalti O Kusis. So I said, welcome people, nice to see you. I'm from UBC and I'll be one of your speakers tonight. And I raise my hands to you people in this beautiful territory called Kusis. So it was Chinook jargon and then Hunkaminam, which is the language of the traditional ancestral and unceded territory where I work, the Musqueam people, and then Dukhlashutseed, which is the language of the Puget Sound area where I grew up. And it's really fun to be here on this panel. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> we're going to geek out a little bit, I think. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, just to reiterate some of the intent about having this conference theme about going down the rabbit hole. We've been through this tremendous uh, change and pivot and loss and grief and like we made it through celebration, such a range these past two years. And I know that for myself with a lot of the work and my, a lot of my colleagues, we saw ourselves going down rabbit holes we might not have gone down. Mm-hmm. And we also saw ourselves not fully maybe finishing out some of that. And so I thought there must be so many other people that feel like that. As these historians gathered to talk about indigenous history, they were asked a series of questions, including what do historians need more of? Thank you uh, to those of you that participated in some of the responses on the boards. I thought we could start off with a couple of those. So, the top 10 things historians need more of. (laughs) Humility. Uh, Listening skills, an open mind, money, (laughs) language skills, jobs, and this one was actually mine, felt tip pens. (laughs) (laughs) And so, Lori and Cole, do you have anything to add to the list? I would say community, which is what we're doing here. Um, You know, I get so much out of the relationships that I get to build with my students, for example, whether it's a first year student or a PhD student, two of whom are here tonight. And um, being a historian is really lonely a lot of the time. You know, you're stuck in the art. Well, you're not stuck. You get to be in the archives by yourself, um, you know, digging around in other people's stuff and telling stories about them and learning what's in there. But you spend a lot of time by yourself. And so I think, you know, moments like this conference are really wonderful in the sense that we get to just try stuff out with each other. You know, I, I, I try not to go to conferences and give hermetically sealed, polished talks. I sort of say, hey, here's some things I'm thinking about. What do you all think? And that's, I think this, this conference has been really good in that regard, this kind of spirit of, what do you all think? These are some things I'm thinking about. And so that sense of community, that's, that's what I think is really important. And, and it's been really important for me to have it be a community that bridges the gap between academia and people outside of academia. That's a really important boundary for me to um, tear down. Lori? Well, I like that list. And, uh, you know, humility is really important. And, of course, you know, Native people... I don't want to generalize. I'll say in my own experience that I was really raised with this notion that you don't know everything. (laughs) You know, you need to sit, you need to listen, you have to keep your ears open and you have to be respectful because people might be telling you things, even if you don't understand that's what they're doing, right? That they might be communicating something to you. And this is part of the importance, I think, of different communities different communication styles, different values in the knowledge that they're sharing. It's not just, oh, I found this thing in a newspaper from 1890, and this answers all my questions. So now I can move on to this next question, right? So um, so teaching Native histories is hard, right? I mean, Cole is right that it's that our work as scholars can be isolating, but as a Native woman teaching um, Native histories in a predominantly white institution, students feel really free to say, I don't believe you. 
Mm-hmm. I don't believe you. I don't believe what you're telling me. And, uh, you know, that's, I have had to learn how to say, oh, that's interesting. Can, can, why? Why don't you believe? What, what reason do I have to be untruthful with you, right? And so um, that's a real shift, certainly from when I was in college a long, long, long time ago, um, that, that the public confidence in the intellectual work that we undertake seems to have shrunk. And I think that's why we're seeing suggestions to be humble, to listen, to develop language skills, to develop communication skills, because people think we don't understand them. And that's on us as individuals, but it's also on us as a discipline, I think. And one project that I'm working on now is is talking with um, theater makers playwrights who are essentially, in my opinion, as a historian, creating public history for the stage. And there are a lot of people who are historians who say, well, that's not their business. They're not, that's not accurate. And so then we get into questions of accuracy versus truth, Mm. right? And so we need to be able, we as historians, as, as scholars, as thinkers, to be able to say, well, you know, the, the example I always share with students, the teacups might be wrong. You're correct. Those might be the wrong teacups. But does that invalidate everything else that this playwright, that this play is communicating the story that they're telling us? And that's where things like humility and understanding, like true comprehension can come in if we open those spaces. Mm-hmm. When, can I ask you yeah. that question? When you when you think about historians, when you think about scholarly work, what do you think we need? I I like to look at questions. I like to go down the rabbit holes. I like to be the person that's like, give me the really hard thing that you don't think I can find out, and I'm going to find it. <laughs> and, <laughs> so um, that's that's one of the the aspects that I think is. Um, Historians need more questions, mm-hmm. and we need to have the belief that we can figure it out. Mm-hmm. And not always just by ourselves, but with our colleagues. So expect my call, Cole and Lori, no. <laughs> <laughs> and my random questions. <laughs> and I also feel like we can have our cake and eat it, too, because if we can't find the answer, then that in and of itself is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why can't we know this? Mm-hmm. Why don't we have this information? What got lost? Mm-hmm. And that becomes a story in its own right. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the rabbit holes, and I'll talk more about a rabbit hole later, baby. But, but um, yeah, the the silences are as present as the the voices. In this episode, we're hearing from a group of scholars in Indigenous history. They gathered on a beautiful evening at the Confluence Story Circles by Maya Lin, at a place called Sacagawea State Historical Park. Emily Washines continued the discussion with answers to a question about how the audience experienced this confluence of rivers and of art and history. Okay, so another question we have on the board is, and I'll also uh, open it up to our guests after I read back some of your feedback, is what have you seen, felt, heard, smelled, imagined at this site that has you, um, that has you thinking? community gathering 
How fast things change in 20 years. The value that different eras place on interpreting and commemorating. Colleagues? <laughs> it was really great to see the story circles here. Um, you know, Maya Lin's work is always so powerful. And the thing that really struck me were the proper names that were on the story circles, um, the right words for this place. Um, both the name of the place, but also the name of all the beings that have moved through this place forever. You know, Steelhead and um, all these other, you know, Coyote and, and so on. Um, and there was a word that came to me as I was kind of crunching the acorn tops under my feet and, and really noticing how different the light is on this side of the mountains from the west side of the mountains. It's, it's quite different. Um, and the word was expectant, that I feel like this place is kind of waiting for something um, and maybe it's waiting for stories like you know moments like this where we're all talking about the weight of the past in this place um, and in all the places that we write about and think about um, and it yeah it was just the word expectant for some reason that came to me and um, and I think that speaks to the the openness openness of um, historical research that we just have as we've talked about already just to sort of listen and not be, you know, tight-fisted mastery of the data, but just to, you know, sort of open and, and our hands kind of generous and soft um, rather than trying to control the information. And so the, this idea of the space as being expectant kind of captured that for me. Okay, Lean Limped. Mm -hmm. So Sacagawea... Uh, so being here in a park named for her has just made me think of the importance of Native women, right? And the importance of Native women's stories and how often those were lost and erased and appeared to not exist when we all know that, of course, they existed. Of course, they're all around us. And we know that because here we are today, Native people. You can't have Native people without having Native women, right? And so her, her voice, her life, and the importance of her to her community, so completely distinct from what she did for Americans and for that expedition, but her importance as a Native woman, that's what I think about being in this place named for her. Yeah, I, I would agree with um, what was said by my colleagues with regards to having a place with so much referenceable information as well as a park service, uh, people willing to share additional knowledge is, is so great. Um, as well as, you know, celebrating Native women and uh, one of my favorite questions to ask my um, uh, class is tell me the names of uh, Native women and then I say, tell me the names of Native women that are living today. And it's a hard assignment mm -hmm. <laughs> for them. Um, but luckily, you know, we have more resources for that. Um, and I also think that within this element, we have to be able to see ourselves a part of something. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, um, Natives or myself, I you know, don't think of myself as a, a, you know, 10 years ago, I didn't think of myself as a, a quote unquote historian or somebody, even though I carry a lot of history of my people and I consider myself a lifelong learner of that history. 
And part of the reason that I wanted um, to have s'more so bad <laughs> at this event <laughs> and that the team uh, worked so hard to do that, including the volunteer that went to all, they found the volunteer that had all as many campfires in the Pasco area, I promise you. He has perfectly toasted marshmallows and the whole deal, but is that I knew my children would be here. And I wanted them, and I knew possibly other children would be here. And I wanted them to see this big fancy name and these big fancy people that have nonprofit organizations, have lots of research, have books, have important directorships at um, you know, uh, higher education institutions. And I wanted us to be like, wow, they, I can see myself in this space. Mm-hmm. I can be a part of this. I can participate in it, even if it's only for a moment or a few minutes. And so for me, it's I'm always um, cognizant and aware of, of inclusion or visibility or people um, being able to feel a part of something. And I, I thank um, the planning committee so much and being so open to um, those different um, aspirations for, of inclusion. I'm saying really big words now. <laughs> <laughs> As our scholars on Indigenous history, Emily Washines, Lori Arnold, and Cole Thrush, continued their discussion, they turned to another question posed to the audience. What about when your research takes you to a place you didn't expect? It's actually a quite serious story that I want to share about this this dead end that I went down. Um, After I finished my book on London, I decided to return back to the Northwest as a writer, and and uh, was writing about my hometown, which is called Auburn. It's near Seattle, and its former name was Slaughter. And I was working on a book about historical trauma and landscape, and I was looking at four events that happened there. I was looking at the Treaty War of the 1850s, the transformation of the White River around 1900, the Japanese incarceration in 1942, which incarcerated one-third of the town's population, and then the in the 1980s, the Green River Killer case, which I grew up in the middle of. And um, I was really interested in how places hold pain and how do we talk about that? How can we talk about places that sort of hold, hold trauma? So in summer of 2018, I was about four years into this project and um, I got access to 7,000 pages of testimony from Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. And I spent the summer reading that and it, it messed me up. It was really, really hard going. And I just thought, I can't metabolize this into something that I want to live with as a scholar because when you publish as a scholar, as some of you know already, you live with that for the rest of your life. People are going to ask you about that first book when it's 40 years old. And, you know, I would talk about this project and when I get to the serial killer part, people would just grin at me in this kind of hungry way and that's not a beast I wanted to feed. So I gave up. I shelved that book. That was a big moment for me as a scholar to say no. I'm not going to write this. He doesn't need another book written about him. He doesn't need to be the center of attention. And I have so much respect for people who are able to do the hard research that is, you know, because that's just vicarious trauma on my part. The first four victims were found in my mom's fishing hole when I was 11, very much part of my adolescence growing up in the middle of that. But it's still vicarious trauma. We don't always have that kind of space because we're on a, we're on a treadmill, publish or perish. And so for me as a full professor, I could throw those four years out and say, I'm going to move on. Um, but my graduate students who are working on really difficult subjects can't do that. They don't have that luxury. 
Um, and so a lot of it is self-care. I have a therapist, I have a life coach, um, and we talk about what does it mean to carry these stories. There is so much that I get triggered by in the research that I do with um, war and historical trauma and boarding school era that I have to have um, therapy as a part of that process. And I have to make sure that I'm keeping what I need um, expressed in the ways that I need to have a healthy place. Uh, we have a lot of cultural and traditional teachings about how we handle food and how we're supposed to be feeling when we handle food that's going to go and be uh, a part of others' bodies. And so I have to really keep a lot of that in check. And mm -hmm. I know that um, sometimes that's a taboo thing for Natives to say that we have a life coach or um, therapy. But that's, I couldn't do what I do if I didn't have that. Mm -hmm. So, Cole, when your graduate students come to you with a subject that you know is going to put them in the middle of trauma, mm -hmm. whether through their own community trauma or personal or family trauma or documentary evidence trauma, what kind of conversations do you have with them? You know, the conversations I've had have been about, do you want to do this right now? Is this what you want to do right now? Or do you want to wait? Mm -hmm. How can you transform a project in, you know, instead of being about harm to being about healing? Um, how can you reframe a project to be about something um, quite different and that is life affirming? Mm -hmm. It has to be sustainable. Graduate school is hard enough. Yes. Mm -hmm. We also um, had an audience response. I'm not sure if you were able to see that or mm -hmm. not. So I'll rephrase the question. What is your best research dead end? Looking to find utopia in U.S. history. Hmm. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's a pivot from what you said or it falls in line mm -hmm. in the same rabbit hole. Uh, mm -hmm. I think I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. How do we find that balance? Yeah. And I also think for me as a Native person, it's really important to remember that Native people are joyful. You know, there's so much joy in our lives, in our day-to-day -day lives, just like there's joy in everyone's life, right? And so it can be really easy to get bogged down in these narratives that are bleak and that are correctly represented as being deadly serious. That then the opportunity to remind students like, yeah, so this was this terrible thing, the George Wright attack his attacks on Native peoples are a terrible thing that we need to understand. But the other thing we need to understand is that he knew that the food caches were important because he witnessed the joy hmm. of hearing how Native women dig roots, of watching probably Native men fish, watching the salmon drying, the community gathering, hearing that laughter, watching them gamble maybe or race. He knew that's why destroying those food caches were important, not just so that they wouldn't have any food in the winter, but also because it would harm them in this deeper way because he'd seen that joy, right? So it's just as important to remember the joy as it is to remember his vicious approaches. I can share one um, that I have some distance from now is when I was studying the Yakima War, 
you know, I had held this story and read it over the years since I was given it as a teenager, um, an oral account of the first battle of the Yakima War. And I had submitted a grant to do a video of it, and I thought, I'm just going to do this, and maybe they'll pick it up. And if not, I'll just continue to privately process it and think of it and all these questions. And um, I ended up getting the grant, so I had to do the video (laughs) for it. But everything I was, like, researching, Cole's talk about four years, I was looking to a four-year research project with this because I I knew I wasn't getting the deliverable. I just kept getting all these stacks of books, reading about the war, and then having to, like, emotionally process it. And it wasn't, I wasn't down the right rabbit hole. Somewhere along the process, I decided I really want to know what the other side has said, the historical enemies of my ancestors. That's not a question I always knew at the time that I was even allowed to be curious about. I still get mess. I got a message this last week from um, the descendant of one of the, our chiefs, and he was like, "I don't think I could ever meet a descendant on the other side." Hmm. But for me, I knew that in order to continue down this pathway, it was something I was curious about, and I needed to pursue it and find out if they held any history about number one, Yakima women fighting in the Yakima war, as well as the reason the war started was because of violence against native women. And I felt like elevating our own individual stories or having them at least be willing to stand by my side as I told our perspective would strengthen it. Because I can tell you after I did the film and it had all this publications and these different things and citing these oral histories, There was not very many people calling the Yakima woman to talk about a war. And, you know, I started surveying. I was like, you know what? I got my analytical techniques course from my MPA. I'm going to start surveying how many times they cited the Yakima war and how many times that was of a Yakima tribal member. Mm -hmm. You know, and in over like um, 160 years, there was like seven citations. And five of those were like in the past three years. And those were from me. (laughs) <laughs> and so I was like, well, you have all these others, like non-native citations. We need to keep going with this because the editors would be like, Emily, again, really, you're citing her. <laughs> um, and some of those were incorrect. But um, what was shared here by my colleague about laughter and these different stories is one of the descendants um, from the other side that lives in the Tri-Cities area. He said that they continue to share stories about the war annually between their family. One of the times that his family would march up from Oregon into Yakima homelands, searching for these quote unquote bloodthirsty natives. And they would go around and they would run out basically of food. They'd be tired and they'd have to head back down. And they said as they would head down, they could hear the laughter in the hills from the Yakimas laughing at them because they couldn't catch them. And he said, that's the story we always tell. And when you think about what that holds, what does that story hold? What does that tell us? It's that we had the opportunity to strike back at them. We knew exactly where they were at traveling back down. And we had a vantage point, right? We could see them. We could attack them. But we didn't. We did something worse. No, (laughs) we laughed at them. No. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for Rabbits and Rivers, an evening of language, stories, and river memories. Yay!
You've been listening to a Confluence Story Gathering featuring historian Emily Washines, a member of the Yakima Nation, along with Gonzaga University Native American Studies Director Lori Arnold and Cole Thrush, Professor of History at the University of British Columbia. The gathering was part of the Pacific Northwest History Conference in the fall of 2022, thanks to our partners at the Washington State Historical Society and to the Washington State Park Rangers at Sacagawea State Historical Park. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering podcast. Thank you for listening to Confluence Radio. To find out more about Confluence, our five completed sites along the Columbia River system, and our educational programs, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence. That's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org.